that God continues to be long-suffering, gracious, full of compassion and understanding. Welcome to Working with the Word, a weekly podcast designed to equip you with the skills and confidence for deeper daily Bible study. I'm Jeff O'Rear. And I'm Emerson Brown. Thank you for tuning in to the 19th episode of Working with the Word. Today, we're moving back to the law section of Scripture with Tommy Peeler. We hope to learn more about how the law taught the Israelites and what the important lessons are that we need to take away from the law as Christians today. This is a little bit longer episode, so if you need to take a break about halfway through, we've made some accommodations for that. But we hope you will learn with us from Brother Tommy and our conversation about the law. Hello, everyone. Emerson here. I'm with my co-host, Jeff, and we have a special guest also joining us today, Tommy Peeler. Tommy, thank you for joining us today. Hey, it's a blessing to be here. Thank you. We're really looking forward to talking with you today about the Law of Moses and how to read the Law of Moses. Recently, we've been encouraging our listeners on our program to read their Bible, and we recently did an episode on the Law of Moses and just encouraging us to read it with a fresh perspective, not as these archaic, old, irrelevant details, but as laws that show us God's character and his expectations for his people. And so we want to talk with you today about how the law fits into the whole story of the Bible. We've been talking about how God had a plan from the beginning to reconcile sinners to himself through the crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. So we hope that you can kind of help us open our eyes a little bit to uh, the law of Moses. Before we get started here, just want to introduce you. Tommy taught at Florida College for 17 years. He preached in Tampa as well, previously preached in Tennessee and Kentucky. Most recently, he moved to Indianapolis, this area, to work with the Avon Heights Church. He and Christy have been married for 36 years. Is that right? Yes. And uh, you've taught the Old Testament for quite some time. We're looking forward to this conversation we're going to have today. Mm -hmm. So just to get us started here, can you give us, this is a really general question (laughs) to kind of get the ball rolling. Can you give us a very broad view of how the law, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, how it taught the Israelites how to relate to God, to one another, and to other people? Okay. It is a broad question, but it's a good question. And I like what you said earlier, Emerson, when you talked about how the law reveals the nature of God. The reason the law is of primary importance is because it reveals to us the lawgiver. It reveals to us his nature and his mercy. Let me use as an illustration of that. In Exodus 22, when God is instructing his people to be compassionate to those who are needy, the widows and orphans and the poor, he states that I am gracious in Exodus 22 in verse 27. God is gracious. God hears the cries of the poor. And so he's encouraging the people to hear the cries of the poor. He's also telling them, if you mistreat the poor and they cry out, I'll be gracious 
I'll hear his prayer and I'll judge you. But but the law reveals the nature of the lawgiver. The law reveals who God is, a passage that I think you want to talk about some later. Uh, God says, be holy for I am holy in Leviticus 11, 44 and 45. It reveals who God is and it reveals how to treat people that we are around. We could look at the first few commandments. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the house of slavery uh, in Exodus 20, verse 2. And then God gives commandments about how they are to relate to him. You shall have no other gods before you, Exodus 20, verse 3. In Exodus 20, verses 4 through 6, you shall not make a graven image of anything in heaven and earth or under the earth. Nothing we can make can adequately represent this God. Therefore, Israel's religion was unique in the fact they did not have idols and images. And you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Exodus 20 and verse 7. The point that I'm trying to make is it shows us how to relate to God. The law showed them how to relate to one another. Honor your mother and father. Do not kill. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. And do not covet your neighbor's possessions. They were to live in, in that way because that reflects what God wants. You, you don't mistreat others. And you don't mistreat the nations around you. In Exodus 23, verse 9, you shall not oppress a stranger since you know the feelings of a stranger. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. Leviticus 19 will talk about loving your neighbor as yourself. And it also says when a stranger resides in your land, you'll do him no wrong, but you're to love him as yourself. In Leviticus 19, verses 33 and 34. So I think one of the things that you may be hitting at with the question is that really the law impacted those who heard it in, in all areas of their life. There, there weren't areas of their life untouched by God's law. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So in the first, you mentioned the, the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20. The first four of those commandments deal with their relationship with God, right? And then the, the, the last six deal with their relationship to one another. And the way I've read the Ten Commandments before is they're kind of the foundation of the law, right? Everything else stems from them. Is, is that right? To a large degree, I think that that's right, yes. And some have divided the whole law based on those Ten Commandments. And uh, so I do think, I, th I think the way you said it is good, the foundation of their relationship to God. And, and I realized, too, when you said that, I didn't really mention the fourth commandment about setting aside time for God. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. But, but you're right. Those four, first four deal with man's relation primarily to God. The others primarily are relationship to man. Of course, what we, how we treat our fellow man reflects our relationship with God. I really like that phrase you mentioned of how the law, the law reveals the lawgiver, and you referenced Leviticus 11.44. I mean, that seems to be a very important 
statement that God makes us, he'll go on to even repeat that, even just the book of Leviticus. Could you explain what it means to be holy as God is holy and how is the law teaching the people how to do that? Um, that phrase is found in Leviticus 11, 44 and 45. It's found actually five times in Leviticus. Mm-hmm. Leviticus 11, 44, 45, Leviticus 19, 2, Leviticus 20, verse 7, and 20, verse 26. And before I forget, Jeff, uh, just to remember to state this, it is also quoted in 1 Peter 1, 15. Right. And we are encouraged to learn from this. We are to be holy as he is holy. Absolutely. Now, right now we're stretching a little bit beyond the law, but God's holiness is the only attribute of God that is tripled anywhere in Scripture. You see that in Isaiah 6, 3, and in Revelation 4, verse 8, that holy, holy, holy is said of God. And this must be a fundamental truth about his nature and who he is. And sometimes the text emphasizes that, well, God's holiness means he's separate, he's, he's apart, he's different. And God's holiness usually is in a moral sense that, that God is absolutely pure. God is a God without flaw, as Deuteronomy 32 verse 4 says. And he's a God who can't even be tempted by sin, James 1 13 says. And when God calls us to be holy, he is calling us to be committed to him in in a unique way, uh, to be devoted to him, to to be separate from the world around us in the sense that we don't get our cues and our instructions from them, but we get our instruction from him. There's a, a word that's used, I'm thinking maybe particularly in Leviticus, that maybe in my mind in the past I've struggled in, in thinking that it's the same thing. God talks a lot about what it means to be clean. Is that the same thing as being holy? Is that, you might maybe say like a part of what it means to be holy? But Yeah, I, I think that cleanness and uncleanness was in the Old Testament often a ceremonial thing. It was not, of course, a hygiene thing, Mm -hmm. but more of a ceremonial thing. But I think the goal of God telling Israel to be clean in these ritual ways, the goal is to be holy. I would not say that those phrases are identical or anything like that, but I would say that one was given and they thought as they thought about what was clean and avoiding things that made them unclean, it was to lead them to being holy, lead them to be conscious of being holy people. It was not a sin to be unclean in the course of a lifetime everyone was going to be unclean for, for certain things mm-hmm. and sometimes things that, that couldn't, couldn't be avoided. But the goal of those instructions about the clean and the unclean, I think, are to create in their minds a desire for holiness, a desire to, 
to be separate and committed to God. That's very helpful. Thank you. So since we're on this idea of unclean and holiness, the first time that we see in the book of Leviticus, this statement, be holy as I am holy is in Leviticus 11 in the middle of these laws about unclean and clean foods. And, you know, for someone reading the old Testament, maybe for the first time, maybe for the hundredth time, it can be a struggle to read through those laws as a Christian. And and we understand that Christ has made all things clean, all foods clean. What do you think the point is of God telling his people in the old Testament to not eat certain foods and not even touch certain kinds of foods? Okay. That is a very good question. Just to, to give the listeners a few of the verses that you're referring to on how the New Testament declares all foods clean. That statement is made in Mark 7, 19, in connection with Jesus disagreeing with the Pharisees. Uh, you see that same kind of idea as in Acts 10, Peter sees this great sheet and is told to rise, Peter, kill and eat. And he said, not so, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. And God says, what I have cleansed, do not call unclean. And First Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. Mm-hmm. And that's just to give you some of the precise verses that deal with that. But, but you're, you know, it, it is very, a very good point to make that those, that first time those statements are made in Leviticus, it's in connection with the food laws. And, and, and I wanted to give those New Testament verses to Emerson because I wanted to say this, that even though the specifics of how we seek to be holy may differ, we don't have to keep those food laws. That principle is still in play. The New Testament specifically says that that specific of clean and unclean food is no longer binding upon us. It says it in those passages we've given, but as 1 Peter 1.15 says, we are still called to be holy. So we still have to must, we still put that into practice. Mm-hmm. But your question was, what are those food laws about? What were they trying to create in the minds of the people? Now, generally, if I hear this dealt with at all in sermons, and, and I'm not, and I do not mean this in, I do not mean this to make fun of people, honestly, because if you've got enough courage to preach Leviticus <laughs> 11 or to teach through it in a class, I've got respect for you. Okay, if you're really trying to find out what the, I I appreciate it. And I do realize this problem that we have, because a lot of those, a lot of those regulations in Leviticus are not really explained as far as the why. And we are left to try to figure that out. But what I think I would say is I don't think generally the, the response of people is these food laws were about health. And we'll try to talk about, you know, pork was unclean. And if you don't cook pork well, that, you know, it could carry diseases. Well, it's true for a lot of things. That's true. If you don't cook it well, you know, it may carry diseases. This is a problem with that. First of all, 
if God made those laws about clean and unclean foods obsolete, was God concerned about the health of Old Testament Israel, but he doesn't care about the health of New Testament Christians? To mm -hmm. me, there's something wrong with that kind of picture. I think the closest we have to an explanation of those food laws is in Leviticus 20. Leviticus 20, and beginning with verse 24, God says, hence I have said to you, you are to possess their land, and I myself will give it to you to possess it, a land flowing with milk and honey. I am the Lord your God who has separated you from the peoples. You are therefore to make a distinction between the clean animal and the unclean, between the unclean bird and the clean. And you shall not make yourselves detestable by animal or by bird or by anything that creeps on the ground, which I have separated for you as unclean. Thus you are to be holy to me, for I am the Lord your God, and I have set you apart from the peoples to be mine. Now, this is a point that I want to make and, and understand that I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible. I'm not saying that that is the only translation or even the best, but I want you to recognize what I'm using here, and that may make a difference in the words. In verse 24, the word separated is used at the end. Verse 24, separate. We'll call attention to four words. I am the Lord your God who has separated you from the peoples. Okay? A second word in verse 25. Translated the New American Standard, make a distinction. You are therefore to make a distinction between the clean animal and the unclean. At the end of the verse, our third word, which I have separated separated for you is unclean. And then in verse 26, our fourth word, I have set you apart from the peoples to be mine. This is the point I want to make. All of those four words that I called attention to, separated, make a distinction, separated and set apart are from the same Hebrew word. Why did God separate or make a distinction between clean and unclean foods. He separated between clean and unclean foods, it seems like to me, to separate Israel from the nations. Israel, when they ate with a foreigner, had to think, am I supposed to eat this? Am I not? Does this reflect God's will? So, even in the eating of their food, which we don't like to put a whole lot of thought into and examine diligently sometimes, even in things like that, they were being reminded of God's holiness and of the difference between them and the nations. Now, that could be taken in a self-righteous way. I'm so much better than you. But it could also be taken in a sense of a serious call to holiness. Listen, I've got to remember in any setting, wherever I am, whoever I'm with, that I have to be different, that I have to be holy, that I have to be what God wants me to be. And I think that was what God intended. God gave these food laws 
to make Israel conscious of his holiness and even the details of life. He gave these food laws to keep them separate from the nations. Mm-hmm. When you understand that too, I think it helps us understand Acts 10. When God was breaking down those distinctions and letting the gospel go freely to the Gentiles without them first becoming Jews, it is interesting that the vision Peter receives is of unclean animals being let down. The fact that those food laws are being done away with shows that the gospel is for all. This distinction between Jew and Gentile has been broken down. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really helpful to have a, that kind of perspective when we're reading the law is as a Christian, as you've pointed out, the principle of no matter where I am, what I'm doing, who I'm with, God needs to be foremost in my mind. That's, that's what the law is supposed to teach us today yes. uh, as we are to be holy. Absolutely. And by the way, guys, I do think this is a great topic and I appreciate you exploring this with your audience because God only gave us 66 books and we know all of them have to be very relevant and important to our lives. And probably the area that you are dealing with is at least as neglected as any area by modern day Christians. Mm -hmm. For sure. Yeah. Shifting gears just a little bit here. One of the things that Jeff and I wanted to hear your thoughts on and share with our audience is when we're reading through the law of Moses, it's easy for us to compare it to our laws today, just from a government perspective. But really, we need to be comparing it to the laws of the surrounding nations of, that surrounded the Israelites. And when we do that, we can see sometimes that God's law actually is different. So can you maybe give us some examples of okay. how God's law was different than okay. some of the surrounding nations' laws? Yes. Before that, I'll mention a couple of similarities. Now, I've just moved to Indiana. I need help with this, Emerson. You can give me some help. (laughs) And you were raised, you said, in Indiana, Jeff. So you'll probably, what is the Indiana law about gory knocks? Uh, Do you remember that offhand? Do you remember what that is? I have no idea what you're talking about. I don't know. Hopefully that's not embarrassing me or something. If my ox gores somebody, you know, am I I liable? Am I going to get sued? Uh, Even Uh, growing up in Georgia, I don't think that that was uh, something we had to consider. Yeah, that sounds more like a thing where I am in Texas now. Yeah, that's right. They might have running with the oxen somewhere. And, you know, but no, my point is that modern laws, we have car laws and we have some restrictions. And I know uh, one of my sons lives in a nation where they drive on the wrong side of the street, according to our standards. But it was common in these ancient laws to have laws about goring ox, ox that, that you're, if your ox hurt someone or killed someone. What did you do? Mm-hmm. You see that in the Bible in Exodus 21 verses 28 through 36. And you see that in the law code of Hammurabi, for example, in his laws from 250 to 252. So you do find similarities in, in, in laws in the ancient Near East, but, but you also see vast differences. Let me be clear. 
Israel's law was not the first law ever given. The law code of Hammurabi or Hammurabi predated the law of Moses by 300, 400 years. And there are points of similarity. Mm -hmm. But we as Christians are proclaiming that God spoke through Moses, whether there be similarities between laws of other nations, whether there be differences in these laws, we believe God spoke through Moses in a unique way and a special way. We would expect in those circumstances to find some points of correspondence with laws of other nations at that time. And we would expect to see some differences in things that God may view differently than the nations. For example, looking here at the law code of Hammurabi, that here is his law, his eighth law. And in this law, he said, if the thief does not have sufficient to make restitution, he shall be put to death. That is his law. And there is another law, law 22, where if he commits robbery and is caught in certain cases, he is put to death. In the sixth law, if he stole property from the church or from the state, he is to be put to death. Often the law code of Hammurabi, stealing was a capital offense. In the Bible, that's not the situation. In Exodus 22, verses 1 through 4, if you stole an ox, you paid back five oxen. You stole a sheep, you paid back four sheep. If that sheep was still alive, you paid back double, or the ox was still alive, you paid double according to Exodus 22, verse 4. Do you remember when Nathan comes to David with a case and he said that there was one man who had the ewe lamb and and um, and the rich man killed the ewe lamb and fed it to his guest. David originally says, such a man ought to die. But then he goes on and says, he will restore the sheep fourfold. David in 2 Samuel 12 was simply stating the penalty that Moses stated in Exodus 22, verses one through four. If you steal a person's sheep and you kill it, you paid back four sheep for that sheep. But stealing, while a serious offense in the biblical law, was not a capital offense. I recognize that you all and some of your listeners may be thinking of Achan in Joshua 7. I do think that was a unique case uh, because God was showing these things are belonging to to him, but, right. but stealing was not, uh, the penalty for stealing was not generally that capital punishment. However, so the law of Moses has a, we might say, looser view of stealing than you have in some ancient Near Eastern laws. But the respect for human life was higher 
in the biblical law. In Numbers chapter 35, verses 29 through 34, that if you committed murder, you could not pay any ransom to avoid the death penalty. The penalty was that you were to be executed. Now, the law code of Hammurabi has cases where if you took a life, you could pay a ransom. Not true in the biblical law. So one of the comparisons I would see between what God said through Moses and what the Babylonians wrote in their law code of Hammurabi is that God views human life with a greater priority than many of the nations around Israel. And God viewed property as important. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying there was no personal property in biblical times, but, but it wasn't viewed as profound, as serious as taking a life. And so those would be some differences that exist between the biblical laws and the laws of the ancient Near East. It's helpful to see, again, not just what did Moses tell people versus what did the law code of Hammurabi, but we're seeing then what is God emphasizing here? And that seems to be the more important point to draw out, to notice from those comparisons for sure. Thinking about some of those commandments, if I'm remembering correctly, my knowledge of the law code of Hammurabi is very small and very outdated, but there's some type of eye-for-eye eye retribution law in yes, there as absolutely. well. Isn't there? That's right. Yes, there is. So as, as we transition into our next question, we think about commandments like that, you know, the eye for the eye, the tooth for the tooth. That might seem somewhat barbaric, although it seems like I hear that kind of quoted maybe somewhat jokingly, sometimes people very adamantly saying stuff like that. You know, there needs to be this, this retributive or this kind of taking action against them. How would we respond to someone saying, you know, that's just an, an outdated law or explain what is that law trying to do? What's the point of a law like that? And then okay. maybe we would like to make a connection to Matthew chapter five when Jesus talks about that law okay. as well. Very good. Uh, the law itself, lex talionis or equal retribution, it is stated three times and the, the fullest statement of it is in Exodus 21, verses 24 and 25. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. So that's a full statement of it. Exodus 21, verses 24 and 25 is also stated in Leviticus 24, verses 19 and 20. Leviticus 24, 19, and 20, and Deuteronomy 19, verses 15 through 21. Particularly Deuteronomy 19, verse 21, I think states the law, and you see the whole context of it beginning with verse 15. And, and like you said, Jeff, this is a point of similarity between biblical law and the law code of Hammurabi. In laws 196, 197 and 200. It deals with if you've destroyed the eye of a member of the aristocracy, they'll destroy your eye. If you destroy the bone, they'll break his bone. And if you knock out his tooth, they'll knock out his tooth. And that was 
that was a commonly understood principle in many nations. Now, you ask the purpose, and that is a very, very good question. There's a statement in Genesis 4. Lamech writes a little poem. Lamech is not a nice guy. And uh, Lamech says in Genesis 4, 23 and 24, I killed a man for wounding me and a boy for striking me. Is that equal retribution? If somebody hits you, okay, I'm going to kill them. Well, sounds like to me, the punishment is greater than the crime. Mm -hmm. And I think part of the point of this Lex Talionis type idea is that the punishment fit the crime and to eliminate punishments that were greater than the crime deserved. And that is the goal of such legislation. But I, I'll tell you why I think people view it as cruel, as barbaric, and things of that nature. A lot of it deals with a misunderstanding of the law. Sometimes we use this phrase, and I've seen it today, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, as an excuse for personal vengeance. The law says, Deuteronomy 32, 35, vengeance is mine, I will repay, thus says the Lord. And even in the Old Testament, God's people were forbidden from taking personal vengeance. Proverbs 20, verse 22, do not say, I will repay wickedness, wait on the Lord, and he will save you. Proverbs 25, verses 21 and 22, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. That's quoted in Romans 12, as Paul talks about how Christians are to treat their enemies. Mm -hmm. When Jesus speaks in Matthew 5, I don't think Jesus is condemning the idea of an eye for eye, a tooth for tooth as, as barbaric. What he is saying is it was never meant as an excuse for personal vengeance. Mm -hmm. It was always given to judges as an instruction to them as to how they are to deal with the cases that are before them. They seek to punish the person in a way similar to how he has punished or hurt someone else through his crime. A part of the Old Testament that some people write off as being full of vengeance are the imprecatory Psalms. But if you look at Psalm 35, about verses 10 through 16, that's an imprecatory psalm. But even in the midst of that, he fasts for his enemies, he prays for his enemies. And so the idea that the Old Testament encouraged you to just get even with someone who did you wrong, and the New Testament says that's wrong, that, that's a mistaken concept of the Old Testament. Yes, the New Testament does say that's wrong, but the Old Testament did too. The Old Testament says that that kind of activity is not acceptable. I think what you see in these kind of laws is uh, the Lord using the governments to punish the evildoers, to keep order and in society. 
So bringing this a little bit now to the New Testament, as we are reading the law as Christians today, it's helpful for us to keep in mind the, you know, the whole picture that God is trying to paint here. So we read in Galatians 3, verses 23 to 25, Paul describes the law as a tutor that leads us to Christ. Could you explain what he means there? How should we read the law as a tutor to bring us to Christ? I think in the context of Galatians 3, it seems like to me there in Romans 7, verses 7 to 13, that the point is that the law reveals our sin and drives us to a Savior. The law shows us our guilt. It convicts us of our wrong. But it doesn't convict us of our wrong just to leave us in sin. It does us ultimately to lead us to the Savior. But yes, the Old Testament constantly is pointing to Jesus. Whether we always are perceptive enough to realize it or not, and, and I'm sure there are all kinds of cases where I miss things, but the law constantly points us to Christ, whether it be as convicting us of sin, showing us our need for him. But I, I made a little list that you have promises of the Old Testament that find their fulfillment in here, in, in, in him, in Christ. For example, in Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3, God makes the promises to Abraham. And he says, in you, all nations will be blessed. In Genesis 22, that's stated, in your seed, all nations will be blessed. Galatians 3.16 quotes that and says that's refer fulfilled in Jesus. So the promises to Abraham, other promises of the Old Testament and the law find their fulfillment in him. The characters foreshadow him. When you read about the birth of Moses and he's taken and he's hidden in the ark and he is discovered and and this woman saves him from the powerful, from the decree of the powerful ruler to kill him. That sounds a whole lot like Matthew 2 and Herod's decree to kill all the baby boys around Bethlehem and God rescuing him. The characters foreshadow Jesus. Even some that we might read and we might think are insignificant. You remember a guy named Melchizedek, Genesis 14, verses 18 through 20. The New Testament, particularly the book of Hebrews, shows that's full of meaning, and it foreshadows Jesus. The characters foreshadow him. Uh, even the feast, Lord willing, tomorrow night, I'm going to be teaching a class on Exodus 12 and the Passover. And there's the statement about Exodus 12, 46, that you're not to break a bone of the Passover lamb. Uh, that is quoted in all places in John 19, 36 and 37 at the crucifixion of Jesus to say that none of his bones were broken. The Passover lamb was a type that foreshadowed Jesus as the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. 
first seven chapters of Leviticus deal with various kinds of offerings. Well, these offerings are the background against which early Christians would have understood the sacrifice of Christ. You look at the language of Hebrews 13, verses 11 through 14, and it speaks of Jesus' sacrifice in terms of the sin offering of Leviticus 4. And so all of these, constantly the Old Testament points to him. And even what we may think are bizarre ways, ways that we don't, passages we read and we don't think Jesus. Let me illustrate. In Deuteronomy 21, verses 22 and 23, there's a law given if a man's worthy of death and you hang him on the tree, that you're to take the body down by sundown for if he hangs on a tree, it defiles the land because cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. That's talking about people who are guilty of wrong. It's not even talking about a method of execution there. It's talking about exposing the body as a lesson to others after execution. But it says, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And yet Paul quotes that in Galatians 3.13 and applies that to Jesus. So some of these laws that we might read and we might think, well, what does that have to do with Christ? We see that, that even those laws might somehow touch upon um, touch upon Christ or point to Christ. As I had a teacher that used to emphasize, and I have repeated often, that any list of Old Testament prophecies fulfilled in Jesus is too short if it doesn't include the whole Old Testament. And indeed, he is the fulfillment of it all. It's very true. And something that we hope to have emphasized in our previous episode about the law, but I think you've really helped us to see today. As we are getting close to the end of our time together for this interview, what are our three most important lessons that God wants us to learn from the law now that we're under the new covenant as Christians? Okay, good question, Jeff. I, you know, gave me the question to think about, and I had no problem with the first two. Three, mm-hmm. uh, which we would put at three, that could be a little bit of debate, but I don't think I have any problem with the first two. All because right. Jesus was once asked the question in Mark chapter 12, verse 28, beginning, what is the first and greatest commandment? And he said, the first and greatest commandment is here, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. In Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and 5, the lesson to love God is central to all of Scripture. It was central for what God wanted of his people in the days of Moses. It is central for what God wants of his people in the 21st century. It is the first and the greatest commandment. And in that respect, nothing has changed. And the law reveals to us his nature. Uh, I love the passage in Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7, 
the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sins. And that picture of God helps us to love God, to see who God is, to see how compassionate and gracious he is. So the first principle we need to learn from the law is to love for him, a desire for him. Second, love for our neighbor. Again, Jesus said the second commandment is like the first, love your neighbor as yourself. And that's from Leviticus 19 and verse 18. And in the context, in Leviticus 19, you see that you're to provide for the poor, you are to care for the deaf and the blind, the stranger and your brother that's within the land. All of these fall into the realm of your neighbor and you're to love your neighbor as yourself. Romans 13 will build on this and says, if we love our neighbors ourselves, we're not going to steal. We're not going to bear false witness against him and we're not going to murder him. We're going to avoid all these wrongs because we love our neighbor. Paul makes the same kind of argument in Galatians 5, verses 13 through 15. So three things in the law, two clearly love for God and love for our neighbor. A couple of things that came to my mind that could buy for third place I think the law constantly holds before our eyes the seriousness of sin. And like, for example, we said Galatians 3 is in the context of convicting us of our sin and driving us to see the need of the Savior. The Old Testament constantly does this. And closely associated with this, though, is God seeking to bring man back into fellowship with him. Mm -hmm. I, I love the structure of Exodus 25 through 40. In Exodus 25 through 31, God tells Israel through Moses, you build the tabernacle. In 35 through 40, Israel does what God told them. It's often said they did just as the Lord commanded Moses. So they listen to God. They do what he says. They build the tabernacle. The purpose of this tabernacle is God dwelling with the people, God having fellowship with the people, Exodus 29, verses 45 and 46. And yet in between these two sections, commanding the tabernacle and building the tabernacle, you have the sin of the golden calf in Exodus 32 through 34. And I would say in a certain way, that is a miniature of the story of the Bible, that man has sinned, that God is seeking to bring man back into fellowship with him, that man is pushing God away as hard as he can, but God doesn't give up on us, that God continues to be long-suffering, gracious, full of compassion and understanding. And so these are all some very important principles of the law, whether I've stuck to three or not, I'm not sure. <laughs> That's all right. But those, are, those are important. Absolutely. Well, we have four final questions for our time together this morning before we leave. Uh, our program 
is hoping to encourage our listeners through the opportunities they have to read and study God's word, to draw closer to him. You know, we want to encourage people to be doing that. One of the things that led us to this program and, and starting it was a phrase that I've heard used before. Most people talk about, we're going to get deeper into our Bible study. Let's have deep Bible study today. And somewhat, we were trying to figure out what does that mean? So Brother Tommy, we'd like your input. Just a, there's no right or wrong answer necessarily. We're just, one your opinion. If you heard the phrase, someone talking about deeper Bible study, what does that mean to you? Okay, that's a good question. Um, one thing I would encourage people to do if they really want to study the Bible deeply is just keep reading the text over and over. Mm -hmm. And like uh, I stated that Lord willing tomorrow night, I'm supposed to be teaching on Exodus 12. And when I've tried to encourage the people in class, just read it, read it, read it, reread it. If you continue to read it, I know as a younger preacher, I said as my goal, when I had a class like that, to try to read it 50 times before I got to services. And when you read it that frequently, things begin to jump out to you. You notice phrases that are used regularly. You notice words that keep reappearing. And so if you keep reading the text, looking carefully at the text, I would encourage you, most of you have several translations, read it in a few translations. And now sometimes those translations may obscure some of those key words or important words, but read it in a few translations, just get a feel of the passage and, and the best resources you can, but read the text, read it, pick out anything you can about the words of the text and there'll be significant and kind of try, if you can trace that theme, those would be a couple of things I would say, Jeff. That's really helpful. That's something we've talked about before and just the need to observe and how foundational that is. And that's a good reminder for us that deeper Bible study doesn't have to go into some type of major programs. It really begins with the word itself. Absolutely. Absolutely. And in, in all those programs can be helpful and open up a world of ideas, but it's not going to happen without first starting there, just reading the text. Who is your favorite Bible character? Well, I guess it would be blasphemous to answer anything but Jesus. <laughs> uh, but that's such a given, I think, that, that maybe is... Uh, yeah, I forgot to mention that that's one of our rules with that. You can't say Jesus. <laughs> it, it, it's hard to say. It, it, a lot of times I feel like Emerson, it's whoever I've been studying last or thinking mm -hmm. of last. I, I told you I've been teaching Exodus, and so I'm, I'm really, uh, you really right now impressed with a Moses who, you know, who in Exodus chapter three is afraid to look at God when He speaks to him from the bush, but in Exodus 33, show me your glory, and God reveals Himself to him. He is a human character who who, who sometimes says things he shouldn't. He Numbers 11, he kind of flies off the handle in verses 10 through 15, and 
God, this is the way you're going to deal with me. Just take my life now. He, he shouldn't have said that, not defending that. But we may have said a couple of things in our life that we shouldn't have either. And so we can relate to that. But all he sacrificed in Egypt and as far as leaving Egypt to be identified with his nation and how he led his people in spite of their murmuring and complaining for 40 years, he could not quit and go preach at another church. This was it. Okay. <laughs> it was the church and you got to stick with them. And his, his, and sometimes he, he gets frustrated, but overall his long suffering with the people is amazing. And yet we have to realize, too, that there's any characteristic we appreciate about any of these biblical characters. Well, you said Moses' long-suffering is a reflection of God's greater long-suffering. Mm -hmm. that, 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 and ultimately, the key character of all of Scripture is God himself. What is the Scripture telling us? about him and so anything good they manifest is a reflection of who he is mm -hmm. what is your favorite book of the bible yeah, same same kind of thing i feel sometimes like whatever i am studying the uh, right now or thinking about right now because the bible is such an amazing book where you have 66 individual books and yet they all fit together so well. And to see the unity of the Bible and the themes that are woven through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. I was, my wife and I were talking last week and I was, uh, I had read a good article on the theme of rest throughout the Bible. And it is absolutely amazing how many places that you can start and trace the whole Bible from Genesis to Revelation. I, I just, ultimately, the unity of the Bible is the greatest argument for the inspiration of the Bible. Unbelievers like to point out, oh, that book was written by a lot of different men over a long time span. Yes. And then to study it more and to know it thoroughly and to see its unity makes it all the more remarkable because ultimately, all of it the product of one author. There are different books that have different purposes, and every one of them is great and beautiful. I, I love, may God help me if I, if I could say anything different than I love all of them. I am excited. I'm going to try to start a class on Psalms in the near future here at the congregation, too. I know, I, I see that's a, that's one that, and I'm going to try to have it outside the assembly a regular assembly where we're not on time constraints of 13 <laughs> weeks or something like that. I think sometimes books that are longer get overlooked in those teaching kind of formats. And one of the things I think that, that I love about that book is how it is just people pouring out their heart to God. And if you want to know how to pray, how to seek God, Perhaps there's no better place to go than the book of Psalms. Mm -hmm. 
And one final question for you. We try to end with a question that will get um, whoever we're interviewing chuckling a little bit. So I was thinking about you being from Tennessee and you are a sports fan, if I remember right. How how did uh, Tennessee's football season go, the Tennessee Volunteers? Well, I'll tell you what, I I am working on a – a book on the demise of Tennessee football. Um, <laughs> and I, um, my older sons, my younger son has never known anything but the demise of Tennessee football, unfortunately. But my older sons, we have determined, they may be my co-authors of this book. We, we can pretty much state the play uh, where it <laughs> fell apart Tennessee football. And it's all been downhill since that SEC championship game in 2001 where Dante Stallworth had made a first down after catching a pass and fumbles right before he hits the turf. And uh, life has never been the same. (laughs) And and, um, so I am presently preaching here in Indianapolis. I am not – I'm neither affirming nor denying that Tennessee has contacted me about their coaching position. (laughs) Not making a comment about that presently. We'll just keep watching the uh, headlines to see some changes. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Brother Tommy, we appreciate you so much and getting to come and spend some time and talk with us today. I loved it guys. I think y'all got, y'all got good ideas. You're trying to do good things and may God bless you in this and your work as far as, and may it encourage all you who listen to to seek God, to seek Scripture, and to see how God has revealed Himself. Amen. Well, thank you once again. You have a wonderful day, Brother Tommy. Thank you. God bless you, Jeff. God bless you, too. Thank you. So as we come out of our conversation today, Emerson, what was your one thing from our discussion about the law with Brother Tommy? My one thing is really specific, but it was probably the most helpful thing for me. When he was talking about the explanation or the rationale for the food laws in Leviticus 20, uh, where he talked about those four words that talk about distinction or separating, I think that was helpful for me to put the laws, not just the food laws, but all of God's laws in a greater context and greater perspective that these are about, they symbolize God's people being separated from the world and belonging to God. And it helped me not only to understand them better, but just to reflect more on how am I separated from the world and devoted to God? You know, when someone looks at me, can they see that I have a a passion for God, that I am different from the world in some way. And so that was helpful for me, thinking about the reason for those laws and also applying the principle behind that to me. What about you, Jeff? Mine is something fairly short. He's used that phrase, the law reveals the lawmaker, or or maybe it was the lawgiver. And 
to me, that's just something I want to take with me as I'll continue to go back and study the law at various times in my life, you know, moving forward. We were kind of moving out of this section for our particular series, but I'll kind of always want to remember these laws are not just arbitrary things or just some old commands for people from long times ago, like I might feel about other groups of peoples and their laws, but think about these laws specifically are meant to reveal things about God, and that's just very helpful for me to think about going forward. Yeah, so let's wrap up with a challenge today. What we want you to do is to read through Deuteronomy chapters 5 and 6 this week. Chapter 5 is the repetition of the Ten Commandments. But then right after that, in chapter 6, he gives the people one commandment that Jesus quotes as the greatest commandment, to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So read those two chapters with a focus to grow in your love for the Lord with your total being. And after you read through that, write down maybe two or three things that you can do to love God more. Thank you for tuning in to Working With The Word today. Next week, we'll be back in our discussion of the whole story series, starting our time with the books of history. We're classifying those as everything from Joshua through Esther, but rather than tackling all of that material in one go, we're planning on breaking up into multiple episodes. That makes our orbit around this section just a little bit easier. So stay tuned over the next few weeks for those particular episodes coming up about the books of history and how they fit into the whole story. Until then, if there are questions, topics, or books of the Bible you would like for us to cover in future episodes of Working with the Word, you can find and reach out to us on Facebook and Twitter at Working with the Word, on Instagram at workingwiththeword.podcast, or send us an email to workingwiththewordpodcast at gmail.com. That's all one word, workingwiththewordpodcast at gmail.com. So until next time, may you grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity.